This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I can't say it any better than we just sang. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us and convict us and fill us with your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a yearning for your word, that you would illuminate the grace that you have to impart us through your word. Father, cause us to understand that we are a people of your word, that your word is powerful and sharp and useful for making us and growing us and maturing us into people who are bright and salty like our Savior. Father, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to keep moving forward this morning. We'll be at the end of Acts. If you want uh, Acts, not the end of Acts. Wow, that was a big jump. We're going to be at the end of Acts 18. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And I wanted to point out something interesting to you as we as we move through the letter to Acts. And we keep hearing this phrase, you might call it. That Luke keeps saying that the Lord multiplied and added to their numbers daily. That he continued to grow the church. Have you guys noticed that while we're studying Acts, he's doing that? It's a wonderful thing, really. And There's another piece to that that Luke continues to do, and, and, and it's that that I want to focus on this morning, and I want to let you know right up front, no hidden agendas, no secret points, no gotchas, nothing like that. Uh, this morning, I want to grow in you a love and a desire for the Word of God. I want the Word of God to come alive for you in your hearts, and instead of listening to the psalmist perhaps say something like, you know, um, that we yearn for the, for the hope of salvation that's found in His Word. I want us to join Him in saying something like that. I want us to join Peter in, in longing for the pure spiritual milk of the Word that grows us up into salvation. And here's why. I belong to many churches in my adult life. But the churches I've belonged to have not all been the same. I have belonged to churches where the most important thing was to impress on the outside world what a cool church we were. I belonged to churches where sin was something that you might catch if you got too close to someone else. I have belonged to churches where we needed to build walls and guards uh, so that um, we could uh, uh, just maintain our purity and not let any dirty sinners come into contact with us. And other very attractive models like that. But on the other hand, the churches that I've belonged to that were alive and healthy and vibrant all had something in common. The Word of God was active and working in the lives of those churches. And the work of the Word 
in those vibrant churches had two things in common. First, when the word is alive and active in a church, real problems and real issues are not being covered up. Lives are changing. People are growing. Real hurts, real pains, real sins are being confessed and repented and grown through. Because there's this understanding that the Word of God can handle real problems. If you have a history with, with us at all, you know what I want. I want this church to be a place where authenticity abounds. I, I want this church to be firmly located on the corner of 1st and Main Street in Realville. Not the plastic banana fake church that so often tries to act like everything's okay. Therefore, when the word is at work in a church, the second thing you'll see is this. It's going to be messy. If you're dealing with real problems, it's going to get dirty. If you're dealing with real life, it's going to get messy. Because real life is messy. You can't hide in an authentic church because the word of God won't let you. It's like I used to tell my teenagers. I, I, I can give you a detailed description of, of everything you've done all day by following your messes around. It was like breadcrumbs. Literally, there were breadcrumbs that I could follow <laughs> through the house, wherever they went. And, and I used to wonder, like, did they putting on their makeup with a pressure washer? Because how do you get mascara on a nine-foot ceiling? Answer that for me, really. Well, the work of the Word in a church is not much different. It leaves a trail. But the Bible would call that a trail of dross. As lives are refined from one degree of holiness to another, they're grown. As people come into the church at all different levels of life, some unsaved, some saved, some saved but still in love with the things of the world, as people come into contact with the Word, the work can be messy. What I love about many of you and about this body is that you can testify to why those churches are so vibrant and alive. It's because Scripture tells us that there is an immense blessing where the Word is working like that. Scripture tells us that, uh, that as those real pains and real sins and real hurts are confronted by the word, they are replaced by a peace and a security and a hope and a unity that cannot be manufactured. Like patients that arrive to a, to a hospital with all kinds of different illnesses, the scalpel of the word, it does carve out the sin. But it also heals and leaves us healthier and stronger. It, it sculpts the church into a more holy, better image of Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the word at work in the church in Ephesus. And Luke has laid this out for us in all these different scenes that kind of orbit around this, this theme that's found sprinkled throughout it. So let's get into it. I want, I want you to see what the word is doing in Ephesus. Recently, Paul has been in Corinth for some time, and he met a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who would eventually become his two nearly closest companions and workers in the gospel. They would, they would risk their lives for Paul. 
They were constantly on the move with him. And Luke tells us in chapter 18, between verses 18 and 23, that he stayed many, many days, but then he took leave and he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. He cut his hair because he was under a vow. And if you remember, that's, don't think too much of that. He, he had been told by God that he would be protected and cared for. And so this vow was probably just a, a voluntary Nazarite vow of, vow of thanksgiving for God's protection. But he was moving on, so he cut his hair. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. And he went on to the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. They asked him to stay. But he declined in verse 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And then he went to Caesarea and Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and then went back through the churches in Galatia and Phrygia. And so, so here's the scene. It's kind of like one of those montages at the end of a, of a section of a movie where there's all these kind of clips that, that, are, that are fading out as, as you come to the, to the culmination of something. And, and what we see here is very similar. There's these, these quick pictures in a row that wrap up this scene as Paul is leaving. There's a, a brief scene with Paul traveling across the Aegean Sea with Aquila and Priscilla. There's this scene of, of him saying goodbye to them and then arriving at home in Antioch. And, and then there's a scene of him leaving Antioch and going back out on the road to strengthen the churches that he had already planted. And what we see here is with Paul on the road and kind of out of the picture, what verse 24 basically says is something to the effect of, meanwhile, back in Ephesus. And in that first scene back in Ephesus, so what I want you to see, I want you to see that the word matures. In verses 24 through 28, the word matures. Look at that with me. It says, now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So first we're introduced to this guy named Apollos. What we know is that he was a native of Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt. And, and interestingly, Alexandria would become a very important place for the church in just a few decades. But how Apollos became a believer, we don't know. We do know that next to Jerusalem, Alexandria had the largest collection of Jewish words and, and, and works and scrolls um, in the whole world. And the, the, in fact, the Greek translation of the Septuagint or the Old Testament called the Septuagint was written in Alexandria. So it's not hard to imagine how Apollos became well instructed in the ways of the Lord, how he became competent in the scriptures. In fact, verse 25, it tells us that Apollos even taught accurately about Jesus. So maybe being a devout Jew, he was, he was in Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus was there. Maybe when he died, when he rose again, we don't know. He knew who Jesus was and, and he wasn't distorting the message that Jesus taught. 
But verse 24 also also tells us that Apollos was an eloquent man. Meaning he didn't just teach the things of Jesus accurately. He taught them well. The the Greek word that Luke uses for that word eloquent is logios, coming from the Greek word logos. And, And literally what Luke is saying is that Apollos was a wordsmith. He was charismatic. He was well-spoken. Years after this, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul told the Corinthians that he was sending Titus back to them to strengthen them and comfort them, check on them. But Paul also said this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Do you grab that for me, please? He said, with Titus, Titus is going back. He said, we are also sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I believe Paul's talking about Apollos. I can remember being at a pastor's conference in 2018 and the last speaker was John, or excuse me, John Piper. Everyone was exhausted after three long days of teaching. But you could hear a pin drop in this auditorium of 10,000 men as they hung on every word that he said until about 40 minutes into his message. Piper said with that as an introduction (laughs) and 10,000 people just erupted with like laughter and excitement. Like, yes, that was just the beginning. And, and Apollos was gifted like that. He was fervent in spirit and well acquainted with the word. But get this, Apollos wasn't there yet. Something was missing. He only knew the baptism of John, which is the baptism of repentance. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, they thought, wow, this guy is gifted. He's amazing. But there's just this, there's some pieces missing. So verse 26, it tells us that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and they explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. Now, there's two things that I want you to notice about this place where the word is at work. And I want you to notice both of these come from that little blank space between verse 25 and 26. First, I want you to notice that Priscilla and Aquila didn't mind their own business. Think about it. You're in Ephesus and you hear Apollos preaching. He's genuine. He's energetic. But you notice that he just doesn't quite have all the bits and pieces right. What would you do? Would you walk up to him and say like, hey, man, that was really great. But did you know there's more to the story? Can I can I tell you the rest of it? Or would you say, wow, that's that's too bad. Hopefully he'll get it. I don't I don't want to walk up there and say anything. Listen, you've heard me say this before. But if the word of God is going to thrive in this church and we're going to be vibrant and alive, then we have to be lovingly nosy. We have to be. Not out of a desire to to point out each other's faults and, and be like, I'm better than you. But out of a desire for each other's good. God wants to grow each and every one of us into something amazing through his word. And we want that for each other. We know that we don't want each other to be enslaved to our sin anymore. We want to be freed from that bondage. 
God wants to grow each and every one of us through his word in wonderful ways. But listen, he did not plan on that happening through osmosis. He, oh, nor, nor did he plan on hanging speakers on the moon and, and saying out loud, Grant, that was pretty good, but hey, you missed this part. No, God has commanded us to spur on one another to love and good works. God said that it is iron that sharpens iron. Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 15 through 16, Paul said, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How are we grown up as into him as the head? By speaking the truth in love. And then from whom the whole body, from Christ, whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, meaning we spoke the truth in love to each other so that the parts start working right, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the first thing I want you to see. In a loving community of brothers and sisters in Christ who are mutually submitted to God's word, there's no such thing as none of your business. Which brings us to the second thing I want you to notice between verses 25 and 26. Notice that you don't see Apollos, an already very gifted and learned man. You don't see him saying, who are you to tell me what I know and don't know? I mean, have you studied in Alexandria? I didn't think so. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm okay. You don't see that. In fact, we see the opposite. We see humility and submission from an already gifted man. And then look what happens. That humility and submission to the word, it matures Apollos into an even more powerful instrument for God to use. We, we can't think of ourselves as having this nailed. We, Especially when it comes to someone lovingly showing us something in the word. There's, there's no such thing as, as a Christian who doesn't need that. Now I know even as those words come out of my mouth, that sounds very elementary. I mean, you're Christians, right? You, what kind of Christian says, well, I'm different. I know everything. <laughs> if, if you spent more than a half hour in a church, you know that's the wrong answer. But how often do we act the opposite? Let's be honest. How long of a conversation would it take between you and I before you said, I don't need you telling me how to live my life. Pride gets in front of every single one of us when we're confronted with things. Each one of us, from the most gifted person in this room, all the way down to me, must humbly submit to the lovingly nosy pressure of brothers and sisters wanting to mature us through the word of God. The bottom line is this, at Cedar Springs Church, we do not accept you as you are. We don't. Because we love you too much. 
There's too much joy and too much hope and too much peace to be found in Jesus to allow you to remain where you are. The word matures. Notice next. Notice next that a living and vibrant body of believers confirms by the word. Confirms by the word. So, after his discipleship from Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos wanted to go preach in Corinth. So again, same kind of a scene. After we see, see Apollos sail off into the sunset in verse 28, verse, chapter 19, verse 1 basically says, Meanwhile, back in Ephesus. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So Paul's back now. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we, we've never heard of it, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, at first glance, this sounds very similar to Apollos. And that's the point. In, in some way, these men heard about Jesus. But through a conversation with them, Paul is able to diagnose exactly what the issue is and ask the right question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? But I ask you, how would this conversation go for us? Like, how often would you talk to someone like this and be like, okay, nice talk, and I got to go. And then when you get in the car, you'd be like, man, I had the weirdest conversation with this dude. I mean, he said some crazy things. You wouldn't believe what this guy believes. Or would you talk back and respond and press and question and confirm? Paul's question reveals that they have an extremely large defect they said they have never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Even, even if they had the slightest understanding of the Old Testament, they would have known something about the, about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't just appear in the New Testament. And there's no way they could have hung out with John the Baptist for very long and not have heard from John that his baptism was preparatory, that, that it was leading to another baptism. So Paul hears this and he knows exactly what to do. He preaches Christ to them. Disciples who say they believe. Paul preaches Christ to them. This kind of lifestyle isn't clean. This stuff is messy when we get into each other's lives like this. And we start sniffing around like... I, I'm not sure if that one believes. They've been going to this church for 10 years, but they got some things off. That can get messy. It doesn't always work out right. Sometimes you don't say the right thing, but we love each other enough to not stop. But to gently, lovingly press each other until the word of God does its work. Let me take what's going on here and put it in modern terms. This was a group of people that lived on the outskirts of faith who knew the right words to say. They were well-versed in Christianese. How do I know this? 
Because they said they were disciples and they said they believed, but I also know they weren't saved because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So, so through the word, Paul both diagnosed their error and preached them the gospel. These men were rebaptized into Christ and the power of the word that Paul preached was validated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and what, what I want you to see is the same is very true today. Do you realize how many American Christians in the church right now have all the right answers who are not saved? Let me give you another kind of example of this kind of work of the word. I know there are many of you who, when you first came to this church, in different ways, your lives fell apart. They just disintegrated. All kinds of problems that you never imagined ever having. You've been fine for 25 years, 40 years, and just a nosedive. Here's why. I've never promised you anything but full contact with the Word of God. So when your life came into full contact with the Word of God, for some of you, for the first time, the Holy Spirit began to deconstruct and dismantle some of your idols. And take it from me, that's not fun. Idol toppling is, is not something we brag about on our website. It's difficult. All the new people are like, we're never coming back here. <laughs> but think of it this way. Any surgeon will tell you that heart surgery, it's a messy business. There's pain involved. Living in a real Authentic community of believers. It's a messy business. Being open and honest and, and lovingly pressing each other. It's a messy business. But what the Holy Spirit is doing through that pain is healing and growing and building. Something that the Bible says cannot be shaken. We come into here holding on to with like death grips onto these things that as soon as God shakes our lives, they crumble. And he wants to replace all of that with someone who cannot be shaken. And if he has to, he will hold you on the ground and rip those idols out of your hand. Because he loves you and he's good. The word of God, it confronts those things in us that we rely on and hold on to that fail. These things that disappoint because he wants to replace them with Christ. One time when I was young, I got a, a really bad ingrown toenail. I could hardly walk. And my mom took me to the doctor. And this doctor wanted to use this new anesthetic that supposedly didn't cut off the blood flow or something. But not only did it not cut off the blood flow, it also didn't anesthetize. And so on the first cut, bang, I hit the ceiling. But as soon as that toenail came out, I was like, oh, just this relief. Yes, sometimes we wish the Holy Spirit would use a little more anesthetic. When he uses the living and active sword of the word of God to carve the idols out of our hands. But he only does that to replace them with the beauty and the security and the hope. that's only found in Jesus Christ. Lastly. Look what else the word of God is doing in Ephesus. The word of God is bringing confession and repentance. Look at verse 11. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then they would say, come out of him. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now that is a great scene. I don't know exactly how you land that kind of job. If it's like a university program or some kind of a trade school thing. I don't know if they had, maybe they had, you know, like we have buses and billboards with some dorky little dude with boxing gloves on like, He's going to, you know, not be nice to your demons or something. I don't know. Maybe they had commercials. I, is your teenager acting different? Call Skiva and Sons for a free consultation. But what these guys see is they see that Paul doesn't have to do all the work that they're doing. These guys are chasing dudes up and down the walls. They're saying mantras for hours. They're going through gallons of holy water. And that stuff ain't cheap. And they see that all Paul does is just say Jesus and Sometimes he just sweats and the demons flee. And so they think to themselves, hey, let's you know, work smarter, not harder. And so they go to invoke the name of Jesus like it's some kind of a potion. And they say to this demon-possessed man, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon says, who are you? Now, that had to be an incredible moment of terror for these guys. I kind of picture like a Three Stooges thing where they all look at each other and they all try to run out the door at the same time and they get squished and then they back up and they look at each other and they run out saying they get squished, you know, and then the door slams and you hear this banging and rustling and grown men screaming and then it, it flies open and all these dudes run out naked. It just, to me, this is hilarious. Maybe that night at the bar they were trying to cover up for the beatdown that they got like, hey, I might have got a shot in. But if you started the fight with your pants on, and at the end of the fight, your pants were off. You lost. There's no coming back from that. If you leave your pants at the fight, you got worked. And that's what happened. But as funny as this scene is, it's not the point. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord increased, continued to increase and prevail mightily. This event, it brought a fear and a reverence for the name of the Lord. Now, if we just read this, it, it can sound like a, a simple little summary of what's going on. A, a quick little note to close out the section. But if we read closely, what I want you to notice is the part that says it was believers. 
that came forward and confessed their sins. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, what's interesting is that we know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the whole Bible. We have their birth here in Acts. We, Paul wrote a letter to them in the Ephesians. Timothy was an elder there, and we have 1st and 2nd Timothy. John was an elder there, and we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Jesus even addressed the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And I want to read you something that Jesus told them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Jesus said, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from, from where you have fallen, repent, he says, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, this might sound kind of legalistic, like, like there's some works that you need to do or Jesus is going to leave. It, it sounds anti-gospel. But what were the works Jesus is talking about that we are reading about here that they were doing at first? Because he said if they don't return to those, he's going to remove their lampstand. Meaning he's going to remove his presence and his power from that body of believers. Well, the works that we see the church in Ephesus doing in the beginning is repentance and confession. And years later, decades later, God is telling this church that repentance and confession continue to be a vital part of their life. He's saying that repentance and confession are not only essential for salvation, but they are a lifestyle for a people who live under his word. Again, if you have a group of people who are repenting and confessing their sins, it's going to get dirty. It's going to be messy. It's going to be open and honest and authentic. This is not a group of Christians in Ephesus confessing that they could be a little more generous. There's not a bunch of men, stand, men standing around a campfire saying, you know, I really could afford to bring my wife flowers more often, you know. That's not what's happening here. It's, it's them confessing their, their, their occultism, their idolatry. I would say this, if Ephesus was today, if we took this scene and transported it to today it would probably say something about a bunch of believers coming forward and throwing their pornography and their phones and their academic awards and their, and their jobs, their pop psychology books, and all sorts of other things that they worshipped into the fire after confessing and then repenting. Just a little while later, an elder in Ephesus named John would say this, in John chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, he would say, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We walk in that light. And the psalmist would say that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
Ephesus was not a community that looked at others and said, there's the cross. You really need it bad. Tell me when you get back. They were a community of believers that that took others by the hand and said, come with me. Let me show you the path that I've worn there and back. Do you know that path? Can you can you see the, the word illuminating that path to confession and repentance? The word of God is hammering on Ephesus. Just look at, we skipped over this. Look at verse 9. Paul is, is preaching in the synagogue. It says, but when some, of, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And again, just drop your eyes down to verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All of this that's taking place in Ephesus is because of the word of the Lord. Like a, like a master blacksmith hammering on precious metal, Ephesus is being refined and matured and grown and rebuked and confirmed. Because Ephesus would eventually play a central role, an incredible role for his word for generations to come. Brothers and sisters, this is what I want for our church. This is the kind of community I want for our church. A community that recognizes that the gospel has set us free. Now let me explain this. If you want to know how bad a sinner you are, Jesus was slaughtered on the cross. The cross outs us all. From the little kid who the worst thing he's ever done is talk back to his mom to the person who was murdered. The cross says all of that is sin. There's no one who's unsinful. Yet, yet, yet the cross forgave those sins and then Jesus walked out of the grave and said, those are gone. So listen to me, the only people still holding on to the shame of their sins is who? Us. We're the ones who are ashamed to confess our sins. We're the ones who have too much pride to say, yeah, I'm, I'm sinning. God forgave those sins. Jesus died for those sins. And then he walked out of the grave and left them on the ground. The, the, the freedom of the gospel has freed us to not pretend like we're more than we really are. We have the freedom now to say, along with Paul, what a wretched man I am. But thanks be to God. This is what I want for this church, a community that isn't afraid to expose and address the real problems of real life. Because the word of God isn't afraid of real problems in real life. Real marital problems are confronted and healed. Real, real sins, real addictions, real idols are toppled and replaced with a real hunger and thirst for Christ. 
I want this to be a community where outsiders look in and say, they're not afraid of my problems. They're not afraid of the real me. They have a confidence in the word of God that I might be able to actually go in there and let someone know who I really am. Because they see that in us. It doesn't scare them off. A community that never steps out from under the work of the word, but instead is being led to a perpetual, never-ending confession and repentance, and therefore, never-ending growth and maturity. Brothers and sisters, I can promise you that God has big plans for this church because His, His word is alive and active here. There's no other way. There's no such thing as a body of believers that isn't in for big things when His word is there in abundance and active. I desperately want the same things to be said for our community. And I desperately want you guys to want to desperately want the same things to be said for our community. This is what I want to be said of us. That the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a... Uh, such a humbling gift that you would even draw us into your household. That you would plan from before the foundations of the world that even I needed Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. Father, I pray that you would knit us together Knit us together so tightly that we're not afraid to let your word do its work. Because more than anything, we want to grow in unity and maturity into a, a fuller picture of, of Jesus. Father, reveal to our hearts the blessing that you have for us through this refining. Reveal to us the love and the intimacy and the care that waits for us as your word does its work. And ultimately, Father, I pray that, as says we prayed this morning, that through all of this, the light, the gospel of freedom from shame and guilt would shine all the more brighter out of these broken vessels. Father, what a gift your word is and the work and the power that you do in our lives through it. Father, I thank that you thank you that you have have done that for us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.